Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Julia Ahn, and I am joined today by my co-host, Amanda Yuan. The ethnically diverse region of Kashmir has been hotly contested even before India and Pakistan won their independence in 1947. In August 2019, India revoked the significant autonomy afforded to Indian-administered Kashmir and implemented a communications ban. Today, we will be discussing the history of conflict in Kashmir, including relevant state and non-state actors, previous attempts at peace, the significance of the revocation of Article 370, and future prospects for peace, given the nuclear armament of both Pakistan and India. Joining us today is Professor Farhana Qazi. Farhana Qazi is an award-winning author, instructor, and scholar. She is an adjunct professor at the George Washington University, senior instructor for the U.S. military, and fellow at the Center for Global Policy. Her focus is global conflicts, terrorism, and violent extremism, as well as women in war and peacekeeping. Her new books, available on Amazon on July 27th, explore the conflict in Kashmir and its effect on women. Hi, Professor Kazi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Just to start with some context, could you give our listeners some context on the Kashmir region? Where does the source of the conflict in the region stem from? Yeah, well, thank you again for having me on your show to talk about a conflict that is uh, very important today for various reasons. It is an active conflict. It is the world's most militarized zone. So it's been persisted for 73 years. Um, just to give you perspective, in the last 30 years, 100,000 people have been killed and 8,000 people are missing. Um, you can go as far back as the British colonialism. The British colonials ruled the entire Indian subcontinent for 200 years. And as they were leaving, they enacted a partition plan. What that meant is that Muslim majority states or Hindu majority states would either align themselves with Pakistan or with India. And Pakistan and India were both created in August of 1947. But the Kashmiri people prior to that uh, had signed a session in July 47. So it was called the Kashmir session. Uh, to Pakistan, and they'd aligned with Pakistan. And the reason for that is because, again, Muslim-majority state um, for religious, cultural, symbolic reasons, but that's not, in fact, the reality. And so what happened is when the two countries were created, immediately there was war in Kashmir over this territory. Uh, It was governed at the time by a a Sikh ruler, and he panicked as Pakistani tribesmen came into the territory to try to reclaim the land. And when in that sense of kind of panic, he went to India. India was ruled at the time Behneru. It's a secular government. And he signed a very important agreement called the Instrument of Secession, which guaranteed Kashmiris their identity, their right to the land. Um, They maintained a semblance of independence that was, uh, you know, within the Indian constitution. And afterwards, what this also did is it allowed Indian troops to come into Kashmir. So now you have India and Pakistan at war on the world's highest battlefield at 20,000 feet. And it wasn't until January of 1948, that India went to the United Nations asking for a ceasefire, and then India-Pakistan came to the negotiation table, and the United Nations intervened, and by August of 1948, the the first resolution, and this is a critical turning point, it was called United Nations Resolution 47, and it stipulated that the Kashmiri people have the right to a free and 
impartial plebiscite. In other words, the Kashmiri people should be able to vote for self-determination or whether they want to align themselves with Pakistan of India. It has been 73 years to date. That plebiscite has never been implemented. And 73 years later, we have a dark, harsh reality on the ground. So you mentioned Pakistan and India being involved in the conflict. Could you speak more about um, if there's other states involved or what specific non-state actors that are also involved in the conflict? Yeah, absolutely. So um, most of our focus is on India and Pakistan. You have about 10 million uh, people on the Jammu and Kashmir side, which is controlled by India. In fact, the Kashmiri people call it uh, an occupation because you have 900,000 Indian troops there today, which means for every eight civilians, there's an Indian army officer. Uh, on the Pakistan side, you have about six million. And by contrast, I was raised in the state of Texas. So Texas is twice the size of all of Kashmir. You have a northern region as well, which is called the, the Chinese region of Aksai Chin and the Transkorakorm area, which is about 19% of Kashmir or the size of Maryland. And that's disputed by India. And in recent news, you have seen India and China um, troops amassed on what's called the line of actual control. There's another line of control which separates the border between India and Pakistan and Kashmir. And so those are the, the major political actors. You've got India, China, and Pakistan. But you have non-state actors as well. And this is where militancy plays a role. Um, Pakistan knows it doesn't have the majestic military might uh, that India has. And so for various reasons, um, Pakistan uses what's called a proxy war, and you have militant groups that have been supported by the Pakistan state to fight for the Kashmiri people, um, and that's exacerbated the conflict. But the, the, I just want to bear in mind that even though there's that focus on militancy, it's also homegrown, and it's homegrown because the Kashmiri youth are deeply frustrated, deeply disillusioned, and so they have also um, have their own armed rebellion to fight against the Indian army. And so you absolutely, you have a plethora of actors here. You've got the states, and then you have these non-state actors, which make this a very messy conflict. So you also mentioned there being Muslim-majority states and um, also Hindu majority. I'm so. What in what ways has religion played a role in this conflict, and how is it still influencing the region today? Yeah. So, uh, thank you for that question. Religion is uh, a very important to the Kashmiri people, even though they're Muslim majority state. It's a very tolerant, peaceful valley. Uh, Kashmiris themselves are by and large non-violent. Um, they have lived with. Hindus. There's a long history of Buddhism in the area. There are Christians. In fact, someone wrote a book about Jesus Christ coming through the area. Um, you have a Sikh population. You have to remember that prior to British colonialism, uh, this area, which is rich in resources and it, and it has um, pristine water, has been ruled by various dynasties over time. And so Kashmir is highly diverse, even though about 60% of the population is Muslim. And again, uh, peaceful by and large. It is only because of the politics of war and the, the oppressive tactics, mostly by the Indian state and then Indian Pakistan at war with one another over this vital territory that you have seen religion play an even greater role today so that the youth uh, who are actually calling for self-determination, uh, they are Muslim, um, but I don't want to... Um, 
misportray the, you know, to give you a, 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 a kind of misrepresent the issue here. It's not a fight between Hindu and Muslim, as it is between a Muslim population being subjugated today by a very kind of far right extremist Hindu government and Hindu party. And that's why many Kashmiris will align themselves with Pakistan, because they feel that of all the countries in the world, Pakistan is the only country that actually stands for Kashmiri rights. In fact, nine, month, nine months ago at the United Nations, uh, Prime Minister uh, Imran Khan of Pakistan actually stood at the pulpit and called on the international community to intervene and for the international community to take a stand and to support the Kashmiri people and to pressure India to uplift its current restrictions. So going off of that, um, bringing us to more current day, in the early 2000s, there seemed to be progress towards peace um, between Pakistan and India. Um, but what was the end product of those peace negotiations and why were they unable to reach a sustainable resolution? That's an excellent question. And I want to first say that bilateralism has always been the approach from the beginning since 1947. Uh, the world community has seen this as a conflict between India and Pakistan. And you have to remember the United Nations resolution calls attention to the Kashmiri people. So the Kashmiri people have never been at the negotiation table. And there have been several failed attempts at peace. I would say that in the mid-2000s, what was so different at that time is you had leadership. Um, you had Mahmoud Singh, who represented the Congress Party in India, and then you had Pervez Musharraf, who was Pakistan's president general in power. And these two leaders were willing to negotiate. So they had a secret dialogue through trusted aides. Um, they wanted to make the line of control, which is the heavily militarized border between India and Pakistan. Uh, they wanted to make it irrelevant, so they allowed Kashmiris the right to free movement and trade across that line. Um, they had agreed to provide greater autonomy to the Kashmir subregions. Uh, they agreed to um, draw down their troops and so subside violence. And that was actually seen as a very positive move by these two leaders in India and Pakistan. And then something dramatic happened in both countries. On the Pakistan side, by 2007, President Musharraf faced internal dissent, and there was uh, rulings against him that was challenging his military government. Uh, he fired the Chief Justice of Pakistan Supreme Court, for example. And so by the end of you know, 2007-2008, um, his government had depleted, the peace plan fell apart, um, but it was, as you rightly said, it was the closest that the two countries came to resolving the dispute. Now, on the Indian side, and then, sorry, one other thing, three months later, Pakistan terrorists um, from the Lashkar al-Taiba group mounted attacks in Mumbai in November 2008, and that, of course, upset the any kind of peace that would occur between India and Pakistan, because that was almost like the trigger event. And then the other pivotal event that happened in India that changed its leadership is the Hindu right extremist party, the BJP, came into power. And so the election of 2014, you have Prime Minister Modi in power and his policies and his unwillingness to negotiate, uh, many believe has exacerbated the Kashmiri conflict. So, Professor, um, in 2019, in August, there was news that the government of India revoked uh, the special limited autonomy granted under Article 370 of the Indian Constitution. So before we get into that, I'm wondering if you could first give us a background of what is Article 370 of the Constitution? 
Yes, and thank you for mentioning this because Articles 370 and 35A of the Indian Constitution had protected Kashmir's special status as a Muslim-majority state. This article granted Kashmiris some autonomy and privileges as a people. So again, they had the right to buy and own their land. Uh, the Permanent Residence Law, or Article 35A, had prevented outsiders from owning property or landing a state job in Kashmir. And under this article, decisions on foreign affairs, defense, and communications remained under the jurisdiction of Kashmir's central government. This was a um, an article and that protected Kashmir's identity. And this is critical under- to understand because when it was revoked, on August 5th, 2019, Kashmir was forever changed. So could you walk us through why Prime Minister Modi and the BJP decide, why did they decide to revoke it? Was this surprising or was this something that uh, could be seen coming? I have to tell you that I, I maintain contacts with Kashmiris almost on a daily basis. In fact, I consider them my family. My grandmother was from the Indian side of Kashmir, and so I have a very close affiliation to the people there and a love for the people there. And I can tell you that they did not see this event. They did not anticipate it. They knew that something was happening. Something was going to explode. And I say that because troops were being um, were being sent, more troops were being sent to the valley. Uh, the foreign tourists, uh, you know, Western tourists and Indian tourists were being asked to leave and so that they had to leave immediately. Um, and suddenly the people felt this great sense of fear and dread um, that what was India trying to do? And you have to remember that India, even under its secular regime, always wanted Kashmir to become a part of greater India. That was always its goal. But it had reconciled to the situation and tried to negotiate for a peace settlement. It wasn't until, again, when 2014, when the BJP BJP party is in power, they had long opposed Article 370. And it was very clear that Prime Minister Modi um, in his 2019 election manifesto, he had said that he he had promised, in fact, the articles, articles dismissal. So Modi and his party supporters had intended to integrate Kashmir into the rest of the country. He believed that when Kashmir would be part of greater India, it would bring economic growth to the valley, that there'd be long lasting peace. And in fact, he sold that idea to his supporters in the name of democracy and in the name of development. And that is not what happened. And so when finally um, Articles 370 and 35A were revoked, uh, as I write in my book, Kashmir went dark. And as Indian famed author and activist Arundhati Roy, who's known for her book, The God of Small Things, and she's opposed India's policies in Kashmir for decades. She wrote an article in the New York Times that was titled Silence is the Loudest Sound. She said when India um, revoked these articles, it did something else. It imposed a communications ban or a blackout. So there's no internet, no phone service. The people are completely locked in to their homes. She said that India turned all of Kashmir into a giant prison camp. Eight million Kashmiris barricaded in their homes, um, without the ability to communicate. And so it was a complete surprise. Could you walk us through the immediate effects of the BJP's decision to revoke Article 370? What happened directly on the ground? You mentioned um, a communications block, and you also mentioned the increase of soldiers in the region. But 
I know you said you speak with Kashmiris daily. Can you just tell us like what that experience was like for someone living on the ground? Absolutely. It is um, feelings of resentment and rage, defeat and doubt against the Indian state were amplified. Um, and what you have now is what I write in my book. I use the words dehabilitating silence because it had a mental, psychological and social and, of course, a physical impact on the people. Um, and, you know, it it was a lockdown. It didn't make sense. And it was a lockdown imposed on the people of forced isolation so that they would not retaliate. Um, against the uh, articles when they were revoked. And so Kashmiris lost their special status. And what that really means is that now um, non-Kashmiris can come into the valley and own land and, in other words, take their uh, change the demographics of Kashmir. So I had told you that it's over 60, 70% Muslim population. Now Kashmiris who had prized themselves, I mean, their prized possession is their land, uh, being able to own, uh, you know, to land state jobs, have those economic opportunities. Um, all of that now is being taken away from them. And there are other laws as well, the domicile law that was enacted this spring and a few other laws that India has slowly implemented, uh, which is going to just threaten the Muslim identity of Kashmir. And so the people are deeply frustrated, they're deeply enraged. And this is why a suicide bombing uh, took place only a few days ago. Uh, a young person um, attacked, you know, there was a suicide attack um, near a Hindu temple. So this feeling of rage and anger is only going to amplify among the youth. And I'm afraid that unless there is a solution to this crisis, that we're going to see the rise of radicalization. Something that you write a lot about um, in your work is the specific effects of this crisis on women. Can you talk a little bit about um, what the experience of women is like in the region currently? Yeah, it's a great question. I, at um, George Washington University, I teach a course. It's called Gender, Conflict, and Security. And in that course, we look at the gendered impact of war. And so I say that Kashmir is a gendered conflict. And what I mean by that is that women will experience war differently than men. Women will take on certain roles and responsibilities that also may be different than men. And for example, one of the ways that women become the silent sufferers of conflict is through sexual violence. And this is a when militaries impose um, you know, sexual violence on a female population through rape, through harassment, uh, women who are imprisoned on false uh, terrorism charges that I have met, for example. Um, this is a form of intense harassment. In fact, some would say this is a kind of a, a hyper-masculinity that's imposed on a female population. Uh, but having said that, women are very strong and active in Kashmir. So while you have the silent sufferers of conflict, you also have a very strong movement of women um, that are young and older who are political activists, who have uh, led protest movements, and I've, I've seen protests myself, you know, I've watched them, who are raising their voices and calling for change. And what I fear that is going to happen, and we have seen this, in fact, since 2016, um, there are certain events that took place, that you've seen more young women now coming onto the streets to protest and to raise their voices and to become the voice of the voiceless. And United Nations in their report from 2018 and so forth has documented this. And so young women are becoming more active and wanting to do something to affect the status quo. So 
what does life in Kashmir look like currently? Um, and if you have any personal stories or experiences that you've heard of from people living there now, um, we would love to hear them as well. Yeah, it is a dark reality. And I was on, um, so even though the through the communications um, blackout that I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of pressure put on Prime Minister Modi, even right here in Washington, D.C., from um, American Indian Congresswoman uh, Jay Paul and Steve Watkins from Kansas and so forth. And so they passed a resolution and, you know, the outcry from other uh, countries as well. So I mentioned this because, in, you know, seven months later, India up lifted some of those restrictions. And this is why I can maintain communication so that they're using social media like WhatsApp and they're trying to keep in touch through Facebook. Um, there is, um, if you have a landline service, you're able to, um, you know, you can make phone calls. Uh, but again, this is a very limited uh, form of communication. So Kashmiris are still under lockdown. They, they are too afraid to speak out. They cannot really tell their stories. Journalists who have tried to share the stories and, you know, of torture and trauma and terrible life incidents on the ground are being reprimanded. Uh, they're being put in jail. You have thousands, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of, of boys who were picked up for the last 11 months who were languishing in jail for no other reason other than they present a a false threat to the Indian, um, you know, state. Uh, people are not allowed to go out in the streets and protest. They have no way of airing their grievances. And uh, a young man told me yesterday through WhatsApp that uh, 15 people had died be of, of a heart attack. And people, and he said, we're becoming frustrated and bored and like there's no outlet um, and it used to be that people had at least the right to come out to the streets. At least journalists were able to publish their stories. At least you could go on Facebook and you could spread the news of what's happening on the ground. But there is this fear and this dread. And so people fear for their lives. And if you even speak up um, in this volatile environment, then you could be put in jail. And there's a twin lockdown. And I have to mention this quickly because now we're in an environment the entire world is you know, struggling with COVID-19. So the events in Kashmir and the lockdown that happened was prior to COVID-19. That was August, since August 5th, 2019. And we're coming up to the first anniversary of that date. Um, and then, of course, um, the pandemic uh, since March has changed our lives. And you can imagine in a conflict like Kashmir, now they have a... a um, what's called a twin lockdown. Um, they're also having to battle that. And because of that, there are these harsh stay-at-home orders. Markets are closed. Schools are closed. Another young person who was going to the institute in the city, Srinagar City, to you know pursue his degree in computer science is now at home. I had someone contact me through email um, who actually was accepted to GW's law program, but now can't leave to pursue an education. Um, so there, there are many people like this, and it's really the youth. Um, when young people are prevented from pursuing opportunities, when young people lose their options, then they lose hope. And this sense of hopelessness is only going to get worse if we don't come together and you know, release, uh, ease some of these restrictions that are currently imposed. Something that you said earlier and something that I think is reflective in that last answer you just gave um, was the fear and the idea that with this loss of hope and with this loss of the ability to protest or express oneself, there is a fear that this could lead to 
more radical or extreme behaviors by those who feel like they have no other ways to voice their opinions or make themselves heard. Could you talk a little bit about that fear of radicalism and how it actually, the Indian government sounds like shut down Kashmir um, because they were afraid of quote, like radical um, terrorist action in the region. Yet at the same time, the very procedures that they have have perhaps led to more people feeling like they need more of an extreme outlet to voice their opinions. Yes, um, absolutely. And I will give you a, uh, an example of extreme radicalization. So last February 2019, before the lockdown, and I just want to remind the listeners that Kashmir has been an active conflict for 73 years. So even prior to the lockdown, while there was some mobility, while students could go to school and there were wedding ceremonies for those you know, who could you know, continue their lives, um, there were still restrictions on Kashmir. Kashmir has never been completely free. Um, and so that sense of frustration continued even prior to August 5th, 2019. And so last February, a 21-year-old young man, uh, Adil Dad, uh, had an explosives-laden car and which he rammed into an Indian um, truck and um, killed 42 Indian troopers. And so that was a kind of monumental suicide attack uh, that had not, a suicide bombing had not occurred in the Kashmir Valley in 30 years until we saw what happened in a few days ago. And so the fear is that this sense of radicalization is going to just create more militants. And when the parents of that young man was interviewed, and they're from kind of um, the southern Kashmir region, where there's even more restrictions because it's in a, a village area, the parents, the father said that you know, even though the parents oppose a violent action, that their son was responding to zulum, which is a word that means oppression. Um, the other story that I want to quickly share, which is really, you know, everyone in Kashmir knows this name. It's the Bohan Wani case. Bohan Wani was a young man who at the age of 15 joined a militant group. Now, he was a young man that didn't look like he would be primed for terrorism because he came from an affluent family. Um, he was actually in a well-to-do family. He had, by you know, normal standards, uh, Kashmiri standards, he had opportunities afforded to him. And yet what happened one day when he was 15 years old, um, he witnessed his brother being beaten by Indian troopers. And then he ran away. As he was running away, he said, I'm going to you know, seek revenge against you. And that's what he did. And these are children who are raised in conflict. It's not one event that radicalizes you, because I also teach terrorism. I've been teaching terrorism for years to the U.S. military. I started my career in counterterrorism in the U.S. government. So there's not one trigger event. These, This is a compilation. This is something that happens over time. That young man grew up in the time of the 2008 and 2010, months-long curfew, where thousands of young children and teenagers were either, you know, killed by pellet gun use, uh, the pellet guns and excessive uh, use of force by the Indian um, army against uh, children. And so they have been raised in an environment where violence is normalized. And when violence becomes normal, then they react violently. When you become, you know, first trying to use nonviolent methods, but for many young people, for some young, not many, but for some young people, that's not the answer. And so then they also resort to extreme means. And now you have, you know, the last 11, almost a year um, of this recent lockdown, 
and the BJP party in India has this very strong militant Hinduism. And some people call it a fascist party. And the Modi, the prime minister, was the chief minister of Gujarat before and had demolished a mosque for the sake of a Hindu temple. And so his his policies don't lend itself for a negotiation. And so today, this bilateralism negotiation between India and Pakistan is a, is a failed experiment. So you talked about how the the people, the citizens within Kashmir have the sense of frustration, but also um, that they're peaceful and tolerant. They're a peaceful and tolerant group. And again, with the conversation about how it's very um, difficult with the negotiation between India and Pakistan, I'm wondering whether do these do the people in Kashmir have a specific outcome that they want? Uh, what do they see as the end of the conflict. The end of the conflict is peace. It's always peace. And a peaceful resolution for the Kashmiri people means returning to the United Nations resolutions. There have been 11 resolutions since the first one um, in August 1948 calling for a free and fair plebiscite. The Kashmiri people have to be at the negotiation table. Even if a plebiscite is doesn't occur today, still, the people who need to be able to decide their own future and their own fate are the people. And yet you have other countries um, trying to impose the will of the Kashmiri people. I would argue that if you were to implement a plebiscite today, you were to ask, you were to conduct a survey across Kashmir, um, I would say that the majority would want self-determination. They would want an independent Kashmir. Now, an independent Kashmir also means that there's different um, interest groups and they would work together. Uh, there's there's different political parties even in Kashmir today. And so those political parties come together under one umbrella called the All Parties Hodiyat Conference. And so you have had leaders um, and elections inside Kashmir. Who they've, the leadership has either sided with India or Pakistan. Uh, it's just the way that it has been historically. But they've represented um, their own people and the interests of their people. And so it is only fair that the Kashmiri people should be at that negotiation table, that the United Nations should use um, its enforcement mechanism, which is the greatest challenge today is that those resolutions have not been enforced. And so countries with political clout, um, including the United States, the US, China, Russia, and others, um, should come together to resolve this conflict peacefully, because otherwise, absent uh, a resolution, India is going to continue its policies and its lockdown in the name of democracy and development. And so long as that happens, there's going to be increased uh, oppression. And then the Kashmiri people, the fear is that once you lift the curfew, the great fear and tragedy is, and this is one of the possibilities, when you once you uplift the curfew and you've had people now in lockdown for almost a year, what do you think will happen? Do you think people are just going to accept their fate, or, you know, many argue that they're going to rise up, that there's going to be a new rebellion. And when I say rebellion, I mean peaceful rebellion and an armed rebellion, which is what you've always had. You have those who turn to militancy, and then you have those who use protest uh, for nonviolent means of communicating their grievances. But right now they're under lockdown, and the international community should come together so that when the, when India, um, you know, releases the Kashmiri people out of this, what's called the world's most beautiful prison, 
that the people would be able to see that there is hope for their future. So one of the things that a lot of um, foreign affairs experts have said in the past um, is that if any if a nuclear conflict is going to occur anywhere, it will likely occur between India and Pakistan. Um, is the fact does the presence of nuclear arms between the two countries um, contribute to the tensions in Kashmir, um, and how does that influence the idea of peace talks in the region? Um, absolutely. These two countries are nuclear armed states. And while they have not used nuclear weapons, we have seen uh, clashes along the border. Um, anytime that there are accusations or against, you know, India against Pakistan or vice versa. Um, so you not only have had border clashes, but you also have the possibility, the real threat of a nuclear war in this region, which would be devastating. And the fact that these are two nuclear armed states even brings further attention to these crises. Um, and so I believe that it's really important to mitigate this threat so that you don't have a nuclear flashpoint, um, so that other countries with political clout can intervene, you know, whether they're Muslim countries in the Gulf, for example, or Western countries um, who actually are do care and are interested in resolving this peacefully. I was on a program over the weekend with British MPs, Paul Bristol and Abzal Khan and so forth. You have a, a, you know, a sentiment growing within the British Parliament, those who actually want to bring peace to Kashmir and, you know, so the UK can play a role. Well, other countries also need to step up as well. And unfortunately, Western countries have not seen Kashmir as a as a critical conflict to intervene. And some would argue it's because of markets, it's because of trade with India, it's because of India's power, it's because of India's relations with other countries. But now this has been exacerbated by another conflict in the North and the Ladakh region between India and China. Um, and, and so... That is another, you know, conflict that's brewing that we need to keep our eye on as well. Um, I mean, India is does not have um, the military might that China has. In fact, um, you know, in their last war in the 60s, it was a Chinese army that won. So Kashmir is becoming a very volatile region where, that is impacting the people on multiple levels. And you have different kinds of conflicts. And the only resolution is, again, to bring the international community together um, to re release the imprisonment of Kashmiris inside their own homes. Um, so we just have one more question. But before we get to that, thank you so much again for coming on our podcast. Sure. Thank you. Our last question is, um, so based on what we've talked about, what do you think, in your opinion, um, is the likelihood of having sustainable peace in Kashmir? And what can the international community and the states and non-state actors involved do starting now in order to make that a more, possi uh, more possible outcome? So as an optimist, I believe in peace. Uh, peace is possible in our lifetime. 
And one of the most positive aspects of this conflict, um, even since August 5th, 2019, and the, the lockdown that occurred, is that you have people who are becoming more aware, people who are raising their voices. There's a woman in Scotland now, Claire Bidwell, who runs the organization Let Kashmiris Decide. Um, you have other civil society actors, Westerners um, and non-Westerners. And there is a strong Kashmiri diaspora movement in Western countries. And then you have other people who are non-Kashmiris who are also uh, trying to spread awareness, to build understanding, to call on the international community to take action. So it is at the civil society um, level that you have many people who are becoming involved. In fact, even on Kashmir Solidarity Day earlier this year, there were protests in New York City. You had protesters right here in Washington, D.C. Uh, there is a growing awareness that something needs to be done. And that, to me, is a hopeful sign. And what needs to happen now is that more people that get involved into spreading awareness, then it puts pressure ultimately on the governments. Um, what I said earlier to me is one of the kind of the devastating consequences of this conflict is what we're dealing with now is COVID-19. And because of that, there are further restrictions um, by countries even to trying to convene, whether it's the British Parliament or right here in America. Um, and so that is creating an additional challenge. Uh, but I'm hopeful that once we get, um, you know, it's not only the pandemic, but I'm hopeful that with enough international pressure, that once enough international countries realize that the consequences of imposing a lockdown on a people can only lead to radicalization, that the consequences of this intense lockdown can only create uh, further tension between India and Pakistan to nuclear armed states. I'm convinced since once, once the world community accepts these dangers, that then there will be action for change. Thank you so much, Professor, for all your great comments. Um, we really enjoyed having you on the podcast today. No, thank you so much for having me and for raising awareness on the Kashmir conflict. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins P-O-F-A on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA news and updates. We'll see you next time.